Well, it's good for us to be together here in the West Auditorium as well. To those joining in the East Auditorium in Lovington and online, uh, if you're newer in any of those locations, my name is Brian and look forward to spending some time with you this morning where we will be looking at the book of Acts uh, together here today, Acts chapter 15. So uh, if you have a Bible, you want to turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, there's some available in all those spaces that you can uh, certainly use. And uh, as you turn there, um, I really appreciated our... uh, unplugged approach to worship. If you've been around, it's a little different. Uh, it's kind of cool, vibing. Uh, but just to make sure we're still awake, uh, I'm going to introduce you to a little exercise that is part of our staff um, celebrations. This is something we do to uh, efficiently and effectively celebrate good things that are happening. It actually started 15 years ago on a youth mission trip where uh, one of our students, Becca Maxwell, now Bruce, uh, married, have kids, you know, things happen in 15 years. Uh, but we were doing like every night we have like this youth group sharing time where after a day of, you know, doing the mission work, we'd come back, we'd share what God's been, you know, teaching us and showing us. And so we weren't real good in that setting with all the kids of, you could say, holding your applause till the end. And so after each and every kid shared, it'd be like this, oh, yeah. Which was, I mean, I'm not taking anything away. It was great, but it just, it got kind of, the duration, it got late. So uh, Becca came up with uh, what she calls the power clap. And it's a, it's a simple, effective, and efficient clap that we now use every time we celebrate stuff. Uh, as a staff, and I think as the rest of the congregation, you should get to uh, uh, enjoy the power of the power clap. So this is how it works. Basically, the leader just counts to three, and on four, you just boom. So it's just one, two, three, boom. All right, you're on it, okay? Maybe we can do that together, all right? And hold that, okay, are we ready? Together, all locations, one, two, three. Wow, that's, that's way power, more powerful than like a few staff members sitting around a table. That's good. You know, this is normally where the person up front says, you can do better than that. I don't think you can. I think that was pretty good. So we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll just let that one lie and uh, hold on to that little skill. We'll come back to that to celebrate some cool things God is doing in our midst. And so Acts chapter 15, this brings us, uh, as you can see in your Bible, we're getting towards the end uh, of our off-the-shelf series where our goal has been to get our Bibles off the shelf and over the course of several weeks get cover to cover with giving us a grip on the overview of the total story of God's Word and how that intersects with the story of our lives. And so uh, if you are newer, haven't made it to all of those, uh, or you've just slept since then and could use a refresher, uh, essentially here's where we're at. Opening uh, the beginning, first book, Genesis chapter one, we have God creating creation. He creates everything. He creates us. Uh, He looks at us and everything he's created and he says, it is good. And it is good for about two chapters. And then in chapter three, uh, our great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve, uh, they decide they're gonna give it a go their own way. And so they disobey God, uh, which is uh, sin being brought into the human existence. They disobey God and sin uh, in us separates us from a perfect sinless God. And so uh, our relationship with God is broken. And you could say from chapter three on, God has been on a mission to reconcile us back onto himself uh, through uh, the removal of that sin. And so we see that story continue to unfold throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Just a few chapters later, Genesis 12, God promises this guy, Abraham, hey, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless your offspring. And then through your offspring, I'm gonna bless 
all the nations of the world. And so we see that begin to unfold throughout the Old Testament. God is working powerfully in Abraham's offspring. And then from, you could say the Jewish people, the Israelites, and then they are to be a witness and a light to who God is. And then that comes to full fruition in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see the story of Jesus. God's one and only son, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the one story of Jesus, uh, who is the son of God who came, who died for the forgiveness of sin, so that we could all, not just Jewish, but Jewish and non-Jewish alike, or the Bible call us Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish, uh, Jewish and Gentile alike, uh, it says in John three sixteen, well-known verse, that God came uh, because of his love in Jesus for the whole world for the forgiveness of our sins. So we have access uh, to a relationship with God by our faith in him through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, raising to life three days later for a new life that's afforded to us as well, both in this life and for all of eternity. So we looked at that over the last couple of weeks, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and now we turn the page one more to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is really this story of an extraordinary mission being fulfilled. That Jesus, at the end of Matthew 28, his last words before ascending into heaven are go and start the church, essentially go and make disciples of you know, all nations, of all people groups. And that is going to be done through the church. And so you've got this extraordinary mission that could not be assigned to a more ordinary group of ragtag people who are followers of Jesus so that God's Holy Spirit, him at work, as Jesus left, gives us the Holy Spirit uh, to be the power in our weakness to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And we see it in the book of Acts of the start of the church of which we are now the recipients of uh, 2,000 years later. And so the book of Acts, you could say, really is the end of the story uh, as far as the scriptures are concerned. That once we get to the end of Acts, that is the whole historical narrative of the scripture. And then the rest of the New Testament are, we call them books, but they're really letters that were written to the church, written to congregations uh, by these various names as to what it meant to be the church that was started in the book of Acts. Okay, so in the book of Acts, we've got the church started, and now where we're at in Acts chapter 15, we come to this important juncture as to what it looks like for not just Jewish Christians, those who are, grow up kind of, you could say, under the Old Testament uh, law and understanding, but now as it expands in a significant way through Jesus for us Gentile Christians. What does it look like for us to have fellowship together? That was what was going on in Acts chapter 15. And so um, what we have here is how that story unfolds. And you might be thinking, I think I might be thinking, time out. John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Like, aren't we good? Like, we, we're here because we know we've been accepted, we've been forgiven, or at least we have access to that. Do we really need to rehash the whole story of how that happened? Well, not only will we see how that took place, that we are all invited to the family of God through what Jesus did, but in this, we're also going to see other important topics uh, addressed as well, including but not limited to politics, profanity, hospitality, the clothing we wear, same-sex attraction, Cubs fans, and Cardinals fans. <laughs> and you're like, that's all in Acts chapter 15? <laughs> it's like, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So if you weren't interested, maybe now you are. So we're going to tackle politics, profanity, hospitality, the clothes you wear, same-sex attraction, Cubs and Cardinals fans, all in one chapter of the Bible. So with that, let's see how that uh, all intersects. In uh, chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's how it plays out. It says that 
Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Okay, so what you have are Jewish Christians in Judea coming down to teach Gentile converts, new Christians in Antioch, what it means to become a believer of Jesus Christ. And so these Jewish Christians were teaching these new Gentile Christians, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what you have is, since again, this church is mostly born out of a Jewish movement, Jesus being Jewish, Abraham's offspring, if you will, they're figuring out what does it mean for us to reconcile Moses' law and everything we've come to understand with now bringing in those who are non-Jewish into our fold, into our fellowship, into the church. How do we do this together? And for some of the Jewish Christians, they believed that just as was very important for them in their Jewish ceremonial law to be circumcised, it was a God-given sign that you were separated, that you were part of the family of God, separated from the, you could say, the uncircumcised Gentiles that you were set apart, they were arguing that these new Gentile Christians also had to, yes, that's great, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and been baptized, and oh wait, time out, one more thing, you also, men, need to be circumcised. What this meant for the people in that day was that the first steps class uh, that meets in room 100 was full of women and no men. Okay, this was a problem. It's like, oh yeah, we're new. Oh yeah, honey, you go ahead to the first steps class. I'm gonna go take them up on that complimentary beverage at the Mosaic Cafe. You just tell me what I missed and I'm I'm sure I'll catch up. And so they had a problem. They're trying to figure out how do we reconcile this, this whole circumcision conundrum that the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians are trying to figure out. So they do what churches do and they formed a committee. And we see that in verse uh, six of chapter 15. It says the apostles and the elders, they got together and they met. And this is called the Jerusalem council. They gather. And it says this in verse seven, after much discussion. And if you've ever been part of a church committee, what that really means is after a whole bunch of arguing, uh, just kidding, not true. It's kind of true. Okay. After much discussion, I should stick to my notes. After much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. So you got Peter, you know, kind of a key apostle of Jesus. And he says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And so God who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. God, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke, uh, or responsibility you could say, that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Okay, so Peter, he's making the case that when it comes to this yoke, this responsibility of what would have been uh, essentially the Jewish law, which consisted of 613 different laws of which circumcision was one of them. Peter's saying, hey, we, our ability to uphold all of those, or really, let's be honest, our inability to uphold all of those has nothing to do with us being saved or forgiven from our inability to uphold the law. It is only, as he says in verse 11, he says, no, it's not by this. It's by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. 
And so Peter's calling a timeout with the group and say, hey, we've got to remember the bottom line of our entrance into the Christian faith. It is not our ability uh, to do anything, but, uh, or, or to do anything but what has already been done for us in Jesus by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from there, verse 12, it says that the whole assembly, they became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So you've got these leaders of the church, these great heroes of the, of the early church, telling about how they formed, saw signs and wonders that God had been doing among the Gentiles through them. So clearly, God is at work among the Gentiles. Verse 13, it says, when they finished, James spoke up. And James here is, um, he is the uh, younger half-brother of Jesus. And as we move forward, just a quick um, kind of time out here. Uh, how many of you in the room uh, grew up with an older brother by a show of hands? Okay, okay, so a good number of you have an older brother. Okay, um, so as we think about James and Jesus here, I want, I want to ask you, what would it have taken for you to be convinced that your older brother is the perfect, sinless, never sinned son of God. <laughs> exactly. You could say that James, being a follower of Jesus, is arguably like the best case, the best defense of Jesus actually being the son of God, uh, actually rising from the dead because his own little brother actually bought into it. So you have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's also the author of the book of James later in the New Testament, key leader in the early church, uh, who would have been uh, Jewish, a circumcised uh, Jewish Christian himself. He concludes this whole discussion, kind of collates, you know, got to appreciate someone who can just kind of sum it up. And we see him, he says, brothers, listen to me, Jump down to verse 19. James sums it up this way. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And so we have James, he just really responds to this whole circumcision dilemma that they find themselves in by concluding, hey, we should not add this. We should not make this difficulty uh, for the Gentiles who are trying to turn to God to actually turn to God. And it's here that we see our first big understanding and application for us here today, that we, as a church, holistically, uh, as individuals, how could you put it? What, what are we doing to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to remove obstacles from Gentiles, from those who are trying to turn to God to actually turn to God? What are we doing to make sure that we are not making it difficult for those who are trying to come into a relationship with God to actually come into a relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I think about this, I, I like to think I made a small dent in this, um, in this endeavor uh, the weekend before last. Uh, a couple of weekends ago, uh, my wife Jessica and I, we uh, were invited to a surprise 40th uh, birthday party that was 80s themed. Um, and so we're there and... Uh, you know, we're, we're meeting a bunch of people that we don't know is for our neighbor. And so we were meeting like friends of friends and extended family that are in town for the party. And uh, what tends to come up in those settings, as, as you know, if you're in a setting where you don't know anybody, uh, one of the initial questions is the, so what do you do? 
And this is always where the response pastor tends to drop the fun factor in the room (laughs) by about 97 points. And so sure enough, I'm sitting across the table from a guy, uh, meet him, his name's Brian as well, and the inevitable question, so what do you do? To which I say, actually, I'm a pastor. To which he responds, oh, I'm glad you told me. Uh, And he goes on to say, so I can make sure, he says, that I don't keep using the F word. (laughs) To which I'm quick to respond, hey, it's okay. I think I can handle it. And so we kind of laugh about that exchange and continue to talk. He's down from Chicago. Him and his wife, they have six boys. That's not a finger, six boys. <laughs> and I have a couple. And so we talk, you know, about them playing football and basketball. And then at his initiation, we talk a little bit about church and God. And in all of that, I would like to think, I, I hope, I pray that in my um, you could say openness to what might otherwise be his default communication style in some small way, hopefully made it just a little less difficult in his journey to turn to God, to actually turn to God. Because brother of James, Acts chapter 15, verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, he says, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God to actually turn to God. And so that's one of our hot list issues. That's profanity, a little bit of a a dent in that. But what about these others, like hospitality, the clothes you wear, same-sex attraction, politics, Cubs fans, Cardinals fans. What does this passage have to do with that? Well, looking at hospitality, when someone walks through the doors of this church, whether it's on the far west, the central here, or the far, wait, no, the east is over there, the west is over there. I'm not from the uh, central Illinois area, so we don't do east-west, but regardless of the door that someone walks in, whatever door it is, I'm thankful that we have a team that is completely committed to making sure that the experience that someone has when they walk in the door is one that is doing everything possible to make sure that it is not difficult for the Gentile, for the Gentiles, for those who are trying to turn to God, to actually turn to God, who had the courage to actually just walk through the doors, whether they know they're east from west or not, whichever door they are. And so I'm thankful that we have a ministry, the hospitality ministry, that's fully devoted to that. And if that's something you want to be a part of, we would, we would welcome you. We can never have enough uh, on that team. And so go to Connection Point and, uh, and let them know you want to be a part of making it less difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God to turn to God. Um, but beyond that, I'd say, as much as I'm thankful for our official hospitality team, I'm as thankful for, I would include you all in what I would say, our ad hoc um, hospitality team. That if you are a regular attender, which means if you've been here at least two times, uh, you are more regular than a first-time guest and have a uh, twice as likely chance to navigate this space than someone who's here for the first time. And so to you who are willing just to see beyond just what's in front of you and getting into church, to have your eyes and your antenna up for, again, making sure that whatever you can do to make sure a Gentile can easily and not with great difficulty turn to God who looks to turn to God, we're thankful for you as well. And to that encouragement, to that end, I want to read to you uh, an email that we received just kind of like to our, our, our generic email uh, account at the church um, on, on the website there. Got this email a couple weeks ago. Uh, the subject line of the email was excellent representative. Uh, and the message uh, went on to say this. I attended your church yesterday for the first time. While I was checking out the East Auditorium, 
one of your members came in and I explained that this was my first time at the church and I was just looking around. Melissa introduced herself to me and took me to the West Auditorium and showed me around, invited me to sit with her and her family and introduced me to other people in the church. She made me feel so welcome and comfortable. I just want to pass along this information because first impressions are so important and Melissa, I'm sorry, I don't know her last name, is a wonderful example of Christ's love and care. And why is that a great example? Well, because we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God to actually turn to God in the way that we demonstrate hospitality. And so to that end, for Melissa, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know her last name, uh, I think a power clap is in order. So to make sure we're all still with it here today, for Melissa, one, two, three. Man, you guys are good. So good. Uh, In addition to that, I would add that I'm not sure that anything says welcome like the smell of fresh new carpet. Yes? Yeah, it looks good, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think as more human beings keep coming, that smell is wearing off, but that's all right. We'll manage. Um, But a whole group uh, came in, uh, like an army of people last Sunday for three hours is how long it took them to knock out moving all these pews out, all the carpet, tearing out all the lobby. In fact, the guys who came in, they, they asked us like several times, like, wait, wait, how long did it take you all to do this? Um, so pretty impressive feat. And so for all of you who served and volunteered last week, we want to give you an appropriate power clap. So let's join in. One, two, three. Yes. Very good. Okay. All right. So that's profanity, hospitality. Uh, we had a few more things on the list. Uh, what about the clothes we wear? What about the clothes we wear? It's interesting, I have a a relationship with another church that you could say it's it's kind of a a traditional setting where it is the understanding that everybody dressed to the nines every week. But there's one uh, lady in the church who intentionally, why she certainly could, intentionally chooses to dress way down every weekend in her words because she wants to make sure that if anyone walks in wearing anything other than what everybody else is wearing, that they would feel welcome because someone else is wearing something different. Why? Because we don't want to make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God to turn to God based on some arbitrary dress standard that in the end really doesn't matter a whole lot. Or what about this? We, I'll speak for myself, I, I do not want to make it difficult for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction to Um, You could say isolate or highlight their temptation or their sin as something distinctively unique from my own temptation and sin as they are trying to turn to God because, in the words of James, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God to turn to God. What about when it comes to politics, Republicans, Democrats? Uh, We do not want to make it difficult for Republicans or Democrats by focusing on secondary political issues over the gospel of Jesus Christ because we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God to turn to God. And nor should we make it difficult for Cardinals fans who this past season were oh so close, but yet so far nor for Cubs fans who might have to wait another hundred years to take on my Cleveland Indians in another World Series. 
We get it, right? Acts 15, 19, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, who are trying to turn to God by ensuring, this is not just an empty, hollow message, this is by ensuring that the gospel message remains the priority, this is the means, the priority of the gospel message over any secondary message, no matter how important that secondary message may be. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying these other things don't matter. I'm just saying that they are never going to be the priority over the priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God came in the flesh to die for the forgiveness of all of our stuff so that we could all have entrance into a relationship with God both here and forevermore, where he's leading us both here and forevermore. The gospel as you could say, the main thing has to say the main thing, that the gospel must remain the priority prior to all things. That's what the word actually means. And its original meaning, the idea of priority, uh, was originally only a singular word, that you could only have one thing that's prior to everything else. Makes sense, prior, priority. It's only in recent history that we have found in our you know, multitask culture to actually make that a word that's plural. Now we have priorities. But technically, you can only have one priority. You can only have one thing prior to all things, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that must remain prior to all secondary issues, no matter how important they might be, because we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God to actually turn to God. Okay? So we get this. We get that the gospel is the priority. But in fairness, um, what do we then do with these secondary issues? Uh, how, do we, how do we deal with them? And so James thankfully helps us dip into that a little bit in uh, the next verse. So verse 19, James, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Then verse 20 goes on. It says, instead, so he's gonna get into some secondary issues here. Instead, he says, we should write to them, telling them, so this is the new Gentile Christians, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Okay, now you might read that list um, and see, okay, I understand like focusing on some secondary issues, but if you're honest, it's like these issues, some of them seem like well past secondary and it almost seems like a random mismatch, like, uh, like an outfit in an 80s party, it just doesn't go together. Uh, you've got no sexual immorality on the one hand and then it's, oh, by the way, you know, don't strangle animals. It's like, is this really a problem? Like, is this, is this something that's going on around there? And so regardless, what you see here is out of the 613 Jewish laws, uh, we have quite a redaction here. We're down to four. And so why is it that uh, James and this uh, committee, if you will, are focusing on these four? Well, Historically, for the last 2,000 years, uh, in the New Testament and Christian theologians ever since, you could say, have been discerning and separating the moral law of God with the ceremonial civic laws of God uh, in the, in kind of throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. And so when it comes to the ceremonial laws, for Gentile Christians to eat in that time, verse 20, food polluted by idols uh, or meat strangled by animal, or strang- of strangled animals or from blood, in those times, for Jewish Christians, for Gentile Christians to come into their fellowship and participate in these things would have been incredibly offensive to a Jewish Christian. 
Uh, so, you know, kind of real time. If you're at your grow together small group, you're having a cookout and the Gentile Christian asks the Jewish Christian for a medium rare burger, this is gonna cause problems, some friction. It's gonna be offensive. It's gonna, um, it's gonna cause fellowship problems for the church, for the group. Um, and now for us today, that doesn't really compute, but maybe um, to contemporize it a bit for us, say, for example, my friend at the 80s party. You know, it's one thing for me in that context to say, you know, when it comes to your colorful language, hey, I can handle it. But in fairness, it'd be an entirely different thing if in his turning to God, he turns to God, you know, accepts Jesus Christ as a savior and Lord, is baptized as part of life of the church. He joins my small group and we're, uh, you know, hanging out with the adults and the kids are around and he starts dropping F-bombs in that setting. That could be a little offensive, uh, you know, with the children. You know, it's like, so, you know, we get that there's some, uh, some understanding in where uh, context uh, makes a difference in how we handle certain things. But beyond, you could say, the ceremonial laws, uh, we have, you could say, the moral dimensions of the law, which are in full effect still then and now for Jewish and Gentile Christians alike, of which we see here in the issue of sexual immorality. And so you might say, okay, there's lots of things like stealing and this. Now, why, why is this one being focused on? Well, because in that time, in that setting, in that context, in that culture, when it came to sexual immorality, all kinds of various types of extramarital sexual immorality was widely accepted as the norm in the culture. It was part of the cultural uh, norm. But fast forward 2,000 years later, I'm thankful that our current culture has come such a long way in this regard. Sarcasm intended on that, okay? No, it really hasn't. It really hasn't. And so this one definitely plays out for us here today. For example, just... Just in the last 10 years, uh, when it comes just, we could say just a specific issue of pornography. You know, it used to be um, someone would have to, you know, like get in a vehicle, drive to a location where there's like a newsstand, physically like make a commitment to, you know, take something off of a rack to go to uh, a clerk or cashier and actually have a human interaction to make the commitment to purchase the pornography or whatever the case may be. But now, now, we can access pornography at the push of an icon that, get this, ironically, sits millimeters away from our YouVersion Bible app. No, we have not come a long way in this regard. And when it comes to the subject of pornography or just kind of getting outside, I would say, well, in the Christian culture, or in the secular culture, we holistically are appalled at the realities of human sex trafficking, of the sexual abuse of children, the horror of it, but ironically turn a naive and blind eye missing that pornography is the gateway into all of that stuff that we are so appalled by. This subject alone is something that is eroding our society, it's killing our relationships with one another, it's, it's damaging our relationship with God, it's ruining marriages, it's ruining families. In fact, in our kids, in our kids who, the statistics on how this is, I mean, it is ruining their marriages and their families before they even have the chance to have a marriage or a family. It's killing us. 
And I know this is not the only temptation sin out there, so I'm not trying to you know, single this out. Um, and trust me, this is no more comfortable for me to talk about than it is for you to hear about. Um, but it is certainly an issue that um, is one of the largest that we talk about the least. And so to not just stir that up and leave it out there, um, some resources for us all. Um, first off, uh, we have on staff a, a care ministries pastor, Pastor Tim Revis, uh, who I know has stepped through uh, this space with many individuals. And uh, you can email him confidentially at trevis at firstdecator.org and, uh, and get, get some help in this space if, if that's something that um, you're needing. Uh, beyond that, another resource I would say that's really leading the way in, in helping um, Christians or anyone really kind of navigate this space, covenanteyes.com uh, when it comes to, you know, um, sexual addictions or just, you know, eliminating pornography altogether through accountability and digital filters and some programs and some plans. Um, they're a great resource when it comes to, you know, for those of your parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, and um, we're, we're concerned rightly for our kids and the world that they're growing up in. They have a lot of resources there to help us figure out what we know we want to step into this space and help our kids navigate this world that they're walking into, but how do we do it? They have some good resources for that as well. And so, Again, I get that this is not the only uh, temptation and sin that we face, um, but we understand that um, there, is, there is struggle that we all have, that we all come in here with, and we are figuring out, okay, what do we do with that? And so back to our passage. Regardless of our struggle, or regardless of our temptation, regardless of our sin, um, we go back to our, our, uh, our committee here. We've got Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, and they're at this council of Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure out, if you remember, the topic originally started with circumcision. What do we do about this? And so now they're going to communicate their conclusions on the matter to the Gentile Christians. And so, uh, greetings, says the letter, jumping down to verse 28. We'll pick up the letter there. They write this to the Gentile Christians. They said, uh, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. In other words, uh, circumcision is no longer being considered as a prerequisite for Gentile Christians to enter into a relationship uh, with God and Jesus Christ, that he is enough. And so verse 30, the men were sent off and they went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And verse 32, all the men then went down to first steps class and lived happily ever after. <laughs> all right. So there's two huge takeaways for us uh, as we wrap this up uh, in Acts, after, uh, Acts chapter 15. Number one, regardless of where you are at, whether you've been doing this a long time or, or you're new to the whole thing, we, by the character and nature of who God is and who he's come in Jesus Christ, we do not wanna make it difficult for you in your turning to God to functionally turn to God. We would say, come as you are. Jesus says, come as you are, come as you are, just the way you are with whatever you've got. And then from there, trust him with wherever you are to then to the second big point of this whole understanding, come as you are. But then the other side of that is, but don't stay as you are. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Or even maybe better understood, you don't have to stay as you are. Like it's not a, a requirement, it's a it's an opportunity. 
You can come as you are, but you don't have to stay as you are. I mean, honestly, isn't that why we came to Jesus in the first place? Our way wasn't working. And so we are trusting in him to do the change in us that we want to actually see take place, actually we want to become. And the temptation for us in this space is that we can get trapped in almost kind of like, kind of like, I call it like a spiritual keeping up with the Joneses. That, you know, we, we think we see what it is it's supposed to look like that we're supposed to become. And so rather than focus on the inner work that Jesus wants to do in us to actually become who he wants us to become, who we want to become, we skip over that and give into the temptation to acting or image management of like we have become who it is we're supposed to become instead of just being honest with who we all are as we walk into this space, knowing that none of us are where we want to fully be, that we all at some level has come as we are today. We have come in here with a struggle, with a sin, with a temptation, with a disappointment, with a discouragement, with depression, with struggle, with anxiety, with worry. We all come as we are with what we are, but the good news is when we get past trying to uphold some sort of image and actually give ourselves to what Jesus wants to do in us and through us, then we can become who it is that we wanna become through what he wants to do through us. That is the game changer of the book of Acts, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is now the one doing the work in us and through us, not of our own way. Because we are not the way and the truth of the life. Jesus, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is our life. And so this is a time in a service where we'd have you stand, but just stay seated for now. Um, and we'd have some people up front and uh, like four or five of you would come and pray about something. Uh, I think we all need pray about something. Uh, to pray about something, to pray about something. So uh, we're gonna make, we're, we're all gonna pray here this morning. And so um, I would say in an expression of releasing the whatever the come as you are, whatever we came with is in our lives as individuals, but collectively as a church, I'm gonna invite you just to take your hands, palms down, just on the, uh, the edge of your lap there, just, just in a symbol of um, release. Both, both legs, but I can't fly, so I'm just gonna do one here. And all right, that's a little too much yoga for the morning. Um, but just with hands down, just a prayer of release of whatever it is that we have come as we are, saying, Jesus, you take whatever it is that we have. Let me pray for us in this, hands down. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the reality that you have come, that you understand struggle and temptation, that Jesus, uh, as fully God, also knew fully what it meant to be human, that we have in him, uh, it says a high priest, a connection to you uh, who understands the struggles that we face. And so Heavenly Father, in that confidence, we open up our hands as a symbol of releasing the temptation. We release the disappointment. We release the discouragement, the worry, the anxious thoughts, uh, the irony that even though we've lost someone or something, um, that we're still holding on to it. We release that loss to you. Lord, for that diagnosis, we release it to you. We trust you. Where we feel, uh, even in our faith, even in our prayers, where we're struggling to even believe, we even give you our unbelief. We give you our doubts. We give you our questions. We release that to you. Father, where we're just, we're just stuck. We're stuck. We feel hopeless. We don't know how to go forward or back. We're just stuck. We just want to let go of it. We want to give it to you. And forgive us for holding on to it. May it be that you are going to do in us the work that we've been trying to manage on our own rather than 
us doing on our own. We trust you to do it in us and through us. In the name of Jesus. So with that, I want to invite you to stand and to take those same hands that were facing down in a posture of releasing. I want, uh, we're not going to go out empty-handed. Uh, so I want to encourage you to turn your hands this way as we receive all that God has for us as we continue to pray. Father, as we release, we also receive the reality that the very grace that we understood saved us at the beginning of this journey with you is the same grace that carries us through the journey that as we come every day as we are to you that we don't have to leave your presence as we came because you are changing us by your power because you are the way you are the truth you are the life we are not our own way and so we thank you for your sovereignty for your power uh, that as we've been reading and seeing displayed throughout the scriptures the freedom that you want to give us from all of these things. We receive it. We thank you for providing it in your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your care for us as you guide us uh, in your peace and the joy that can only come from you that this world does not understand apart from you. We are thankful for it. And so may we receive it, have it, live in it, that we might then also live uh, as an example of it to those who do not yet know you. Um, and that we would not make it difficult for ourselves to turn to you as we turn to you, but also, God, that we would not make it difficult and we make a way for others to turn to you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, to work in us and through us, we pray in the name of Jesus. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. It's like a power amen. That's good. Um, and let me just say, if today it's not um, a continuation, but maybe for you it is the first time that you want to receive the grace of Jesus Christ in this new life, then uh, in all those locations, the hosts in the other rooms, or I'll be right here at the, at the end, uh, just hang back. I'll be the last to leave and would be honored to have that conversation about what those next steps look like uh, for you. But we've had prayer together. We've declared in prayer. And now may we, as we wrap up, declare in song the reality of what we now know in our living hope in Jesus Christ. Would you sing with us?